marvel above all marvels that we could sing that song and it's true that it is well with our souls. It should not be well with our souls, we who enter this world dead in our trespasses and sin, at hostility with you, not submitting ourselves to your word, your will, your way, worshiping other things, and yet the marvel of grace and the intention of your eternal purpose in creation was that you would redeem a people, create a new humanity in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we gather together as that people who exult in your work in Christ and our salvation and our hope and our joy. And so we do pray as we gather to worship you, to hear you speak to us corporately from your word, that you would, Holy Spirit, fulfill your ministry and be our teacher, our sanctifier, and maybe in some cases, even the one who opens that word and brings forth new life in those who do not yet know you. And so we ask that you would accomplish all of these good things, and we pray them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles back to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We're going to try to finish our look this morning, this little peek into the worship and the glories of heaven, uh, picking up where we left off last week uh, in the middle of verse 9. But let me begin just by reminding us of this, that all of creation exists Uh, For the purpose of worship, it is the essence of what it means to be a creature made in the image of our creator that establishes in our very identity as these creatures, image bearers of God, that we are designed to be worshipers of God, worshipers of the one who made us. The great evidence of sin in fallen man is that they will not worship God in truth as creator and redeemer. You remember the very heart of what Paul's explanation of the fallenness of man is in Romans 1 is this. Romans 1.25, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That is the essence of the fallenness of man. And the great evidence of regeneration, of being a new creation in Christ, is to find your highest delight in the worship of God and of Christ and all that he has revealed to us in Scripture. Paul puts it this way succinctly in Philippians 3.3. Christians are those who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. That is the very identity of a regenerate person, of of a true believer in God, is that they worship in glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus by the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. It is such worshipers that John tells us in recording the words of Jesus in John 4 that the Father seeks those who worship in spirit and in truth. Such is the purpose of us as created beings and ultimately as the redeemed, is that we are to be worshipers of God. And again, that is what we see is going to be the theme of heaven and is the theme of those who are in heaven and will be the theme of all of creation one day. And we get a glimpse of that here in Revelation chapter 5. Let me read the the passage in its entirety and then we'll pick up where we left off last week. So beginning in verse 1. Remember, this is worship now focusing on Christ the Lamb and his right to reclaim and establish his kingdom that is to come. Verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And such is this marvelous scene as we get this peek again into the glories of heaven and the future glories to come. Now we know it broke this down into two main sections. The first is the worship of the Creator. The worship of the Creator. And that was in chapter 4. And here we have, and then we had the worship of the worthy Christ, which is the beginning of verses 1 through 7 in chapter 5. And then the second part that we began last week is the worship of all of creation. And we noted that in this worship of all of creation, it has a particular character. It is marked by humble reverence. They fell before the presence of God and of the Lamb and Him who sits on the throne. It's marked by joyful hope as they had their harps to sing a new song, new songs of praise, new songs of joy that are inspired not only by this fresh sense of the look at the glory of God, but in anticipation of the kingdom that is to come, these eschatological realities, these coming glories at the end of the age. It is a joyful worship. And we noted then as well that it has a particular content. It has a particular content. And the content, right at the beginning, and a theme that is run through the entirety of this chapter 5 particularly, is that of Christ as Redeemer, the Lamb who is slain. And so it focuses then in verse 9 on the worthiness of Christ to take the book and break its seals. The only worthy one in all of creation, the only worthy one in all of heaven, all of creation stands silent before the question who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Only one is found and it is Christ and so he is the object of worship here, his worthiness. And the grounds of this worthiness is because he is the one who was slain and purchased for God with his blood, men from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He is worthy because of redeeming grace. 
He is worthy because he alone could and he alone did pay the price for the redemption of a people given to him to establish a kingdom that is given to him. We noted last week the centrality of redemption to the very identity of the people of God and to the worship of God's people. And as it relates to our salvation, this deliverance is from sin's power and from penalty. And it means that by His blood, He freed us not only from sin's power and penalty, but He in doing so purchased for Himself and for God a people to belong to Him. Using this language, the people of God's own possession, we are identified as God's people. We belong to Him. We belong to God and we are His unique possession not only by virtue of creation but particularly by virtue of His grace of redemption. Paul put it in this way. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Our lives are not our own, we who belong to Christ. They have been purchased. They have been bought. They belong to Him. And the great price of this redemption, as we noted last week, again was His blood, His atoning death, His violent suffering, pictured in both His standing in the imagery of a lamb who was slain, in the imagery of one that has been slain for His people. A lamb slain looks at Him as the atoning sacrifice, the one who underwent the violent death. It is a picture of the reality and the eternality even of his love for his people. And this then is the longing and the hope of God's people. I ran across this uh, recently. It was in the letters of Samuel Rutherford writing to a a woman he was trying to encourage. But he, he caught this picture and he said this as he's trying to encourage her to persevere. He says, longing for that place that she is to be, longing for that place where your soul shall feast and banquet forever and ever upon a glorious sight of the incomprehensible Trinity, and where ye shall see the fair face of the man Christ, even the beautiful face that was once for your cause more marred than any other, the visages of the sons of men, and was all covered with spitting and blood. One day we will look on that face who was beyond recognition when he was enduring the beatings and the sufferings of the cross, but in one day will be all glorious in the joy of his people. We noted then as well that this work of God is a Trinitarian work, as is every act of God is an act of the Trinity and the Father and the Son and the Spirit, each in their own according to their own role within the Godhead. The Father who sits upon the throne was worshipped in chapter 4 for planning creation, for planning redemption, and planning everything that would bring glory to Him through the Son. In fact, as we looked at those passages, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And here is the son who was the lamb slain who purchased the people given to him by the father so that the son would be glorified in them and in his glory he would bring glory to the father. We noted the work of the spirit and all of who applied and empowered all of this work of Christ and this plan of God and the one who was sent out into all of the earth to accomplish God's purposes. We noted this redemption is personal. It is personal. We were known by name before the foundation of the world. 
Paul captured this sweetness of this in Galatians 2.20 when he says his obedience is motivated and grounded in him who loved me and gave himself up for me. John, the very author of this revelation to whom this revelation was given, loved to describe himself as who? The disciple whom Jesus loved. So overwhelmed was he by the tender love of his Savior. Now we come into another aspect of this redemption. And we could call it and say that it is broadly particular. Broadly particular. First, it is focused on Christ's worthiness. Second, on the very center of the price paid for our redemption and the grace of God in it. And now we see its application in being broadly particular. He says that those who are offering or who are the recipients of this redeeming grace are from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. This is a wonderful statement that points to both the universality of redemption and its particular nature, both to its broadness and to its narrowness. And it is the subject of their worship. It is a broad work. It is a universal work, firstly, It is from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation that God redeems a people for himself. It is a reference to all of humanity and all of its diversity and even all of its fallenness. It is out of that mass that God had secured the redemption of his people. It is often a way to describe, even in the book of Revelation, those who are a part of the kingdom of Antichrist, those who are a part of that system and that spiritual power of rebellion against Christ. In Revelation 11.9, let me just remind you of a few. Don't turn there, you don't have to. Revelation 11.9, it says, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. And that's after the two witnesses that God sends are slain and all the world rejoices in their death and they Look upon them. In Revelation 13, 7, in reference to this coming kingdom of the Antichrist, it says, It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. In Revelation 17, 15, And he said to me, The waters which you saw there where the harlot sits are peoples and multitude and nations and tongues. That's the mass of humanity in all of its diversity, and all of its completeness, are described in these, this language. Drawing as well, we won't turn there, as much is here, and we'll look at it more later, from the book of Daniel. Even if Nebuchadnezzar said he was given to rule over all the tribes and nations and tongues and so forth, looking at the comprehensiveness of his rule and of his kingdom. Of course, that in a representative sense, whereas that of the kingdom of Antichrist will actually include every inhabited person on the earth. And this is the mark of this present age, which we've noted many times, is defined in this way by John as well in his epistle, that he is the ruler of this world, the God of this world. He is the one who rules over a kingdom that has temporarily been given to him by God. And it is from this mass of humanity under the spiritual influence of the Antichrist that God calls, look, a people to himself. He calls from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. He calls from this mass of the fallen world a people for himself. And I would note here then that as God 
demonstrates his redeeming love out of this mass of fallen humanity. This has always been the purpose of God. This has always been the purpose of God. Jesus said those wonderful words in John 3.16. You remember them? You better. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is to say that God had a love for the mass of humanity and His image bearers out of which He would call to Himself a people that He had chosen before the foundation of the world. This was always God's purposes. The universal scope of salvation was inherent at the very declaration that God made after the fall of man when He said to the serpent that a seed from the woman would crush him on the head. The universal scope of God's salvation was inherent and a part of the very covenant that God made with Abraham when he said through him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed or all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through him would come the nation of Israel and Israel would be the chosen means through which God's name and salvation would be known. They were the vehicle of the knowledge and the glory and the grace of God throughout all of the earth they were supposed to be and one day will be. The universal scope of God's rule is seen in the promise to David that I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. That is a promise that a king is going to come through the line of David, the king of Israel, the promised king, the anticipated king to come yet again in the future. And yet his rule as the king of Israel will extend to all of the nations of the earth. Ultimately, he is the king of all of the nations. Let me just very, very briefly give one example of this. In Jeremiah chapter 10, and again, I'm just going to read a few verses. You don't have to turn there. In Jeremiah chapter 10, he says this, beginning uh, beginning in verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For who among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you? They are altogether stupid, and so forth. Verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And this kingship of God is centered on the king that was promised to Israel, the son, the son whom of Psalm 2 says that the nations that do not give homage to him will be disciplined. They will suffer. That he is the king of all of the nations and his rule ultimately will include a rule over all of the nations. This was anticipated in the prophets as well. Isaiah 19, we've looked at. The anticipation of this coming kingdom is that Israel would have a unique place, but with Israel, Egypt would worship and Assyria would worship and they would come with them to the place of God's appointed place of worship in Zion. It's inherent in the very incarnation of the Son who was the incarnate God in humanity to redeem humanity. So this was always the eternal purpose of God It was never meant to be only the salvation of the nation of Israel. And that's part of what is being emphasized here. It was to be a salvation that extended through Israel, through the Messiah that came through Israel, to all of humanity. And this was the very proclamation of the new covenant. Paul proclaimed to the Romans 
just want to give you a flavor of this. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles also? That was always God's purpose, ultimately. To the Greeks, you'll remember that Paul said this in his proclamation. The God who made the world and all things in it. He is also the God, who, the God who made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. God's interest has always extended, the point is, to all of humanity to all of those who bear His image, to all of those who were created to worship Him. It is always God's purpose. Here, realized in a final climactic glory, when all of the collected from all of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation are before Him to worship Him. This is why the gospel call is always meant to go out to all of the nations. Even in the Old Testament through Isaiah... God said this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. This is the global sense. This is behind Jesus' words when he was anticipating the cross, knowing the rejection of his nation that he said in John 12, 23, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Who's he going to draw? Men from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all peoples are going to have extended to them the gift of salvation. All of them. Not that every single human being but that out of all of the mass of humanity, God has redeemed for himself a people. Now, I just want to make one note here, just one application note. And that is this, kind of related to where we are. This has massive implications for the sins and divisions and violence that come from fallen men that result not only of the Tower of Babel and the abiding sin that is men, men, that always divides and has violence based on ethnicity, race, and so forth. This every ethnic and cultural and language barrier is swept away by the work of Christ, in whom all belong to him are one who, who belong to him are one new man, one new humanity. To state it plainly, this means then that critical theory related to justice and race is a satanic theory. It's satanic. It's evil. It is directly opposed to the reality of God as creator and redeemer of all men in Christ. It is directly opposed to man's universal responsibility to repent, trust, and overcome the challenges of living in a fallen world by obeying their creator. This has massive implications to us, to the purposes of God. In contrast to that, the church should utterly and absolutely reject those secular theories which have only division and destruction within them and are instead to proclaim the message and model the message that God has redeemed for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to dwell and gather in harmony and unity and love and worship of the Savior. That's the great glory of the new covenant. 
And it's not unlike, in principle, the great glory that had to be overcome and realized and was in the preaching of the gospel through the Jews in the New Covenant when he said that God has broken down that barrier that consisted in the law and so forth. He broke it down so that Jew and Gentile could be one new man in Christ indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And the church should model that. That's the broad sense of it. The broadness of God's glory, the broadness of God's concern for all of humanity, the broadness of God's redeeming love and work that reaches out to all of humanity, but it has a particular nature to it as well. Let's just consider this briefly. He says, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That is to say, not every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is redeemed, is saved. There is a group. There is a people, there is a chosen ones that are out of that mass of humanity, but it is not all of humanity. This is a statement of particular redemption. He did not redeem man universally, nor did he intend to save all of humanity or he would be considered a failure. But he came to redeem a people, Christ did, given to him by the Father from all of humanity. John said... In John 6, recording the words of Jesus, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. He said that and extended it throughout the chapter to explain why do you hear my words and you do not believe? Why do some believe and some not believe? Because some are given to me by the Father and some are not. He said in chapter 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. Gospel, God's love for all of humanity His care and concern for all of his image bearers means that the opportunity and the gospel goes out to all of creation. Even in the tribulation itself, God does not withhold sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. He says in chapter 14, 6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Even in the heights of his climactic judgment upon the earth, God is sure to give the offer of salvation to all of humanity. This is known as the general call. The general call. However, only those whom God has, before the foundation of the world, determined to redeem from that mass, mass will respond. Let me just give you, I don't want to spend too far on this, but let me just give you one text. I think that's illustrated in this tremendous verse to the Apostle Paul. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's talking about the things that he suffers. And the reason that he does so, he says in verse 10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. And so the gospel goes out to every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. It is received by those who are chosen, those for whom Christ died. Now let's just consider this briefly. There are approximately 8 billion people on the face of the the planet now, by estimates. Approximately 8 billion people. 8 billion image bearers on the earth. 8 billion people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. I would ask this question, how many are regenerate? How many are regenerate? number is very small in comparison. Let me just give you some idea of that. 
In the U.S., the United States, there are nearly, roughly, 340 million people, the most consistent or recent uh, estimates. And according to those statistics, 43% have some claim to Protestant Christianity or to Christianity. Out of that 43%, only 20% attend service weekly. So those who are out of that 43% even give any hope of actually being regenerate believers are 20%. And considering Jesus' statement that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it, and the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it, knowing that that 20% includes many masses with a gospel that is distorted, weak, and misleading, that there's even a smaller number than that. So being very generous, however, of 340 million people in our nation alone, less than 60 million are Christians, that means over 280 million are unregenerate. Imagine that. Imagine that. There are approximately 240 million people in Pakistan and another nation that's said to have a large Christian population, actually, Well, in Pakistan, excuse me, not in Pakistan, Nigeria. Pakistan, there's 90% who identify as Muslims and the evangelical population is estimated around 2%. 2%. That's 4.8 million out of 240 million. And again, applying Jesus' word, it's probably much less than 2% that are regenerate, but let's just go with 2%. That means 4.8 million are regenerate, could possibly be regenerate, and 235 million are unregenerate. There are approximately 223 million in Nigeria. That supposedly has a large Protestant uh, uh, population. It's estimated around 40% including large portions, however, of charismatic and Pentecostal, the Benny Hinn type, that go there with these large crusades. And again, applying Jesus' statement, even to that number, and the character of the church in our times, a generous suggestion of 30% of that number is regenerate, which is very generous, would make it 28 million with 195 million unregenerate. In France, there are 65 million people with an estimate 745,000 Protestant Christians That means that in France, there would be, out of all of that number, 64,350,000 unregenerate and about 600,000 regenerate. We could go on and on. North Korea, Cuba, Russia, China, and so forth. The point is this, is that the gospel broadly goes out, but the application of it is to a number that is actually very small. And the smallness of that number is a part of the praise of God's people. If you are here and you are regenerate and you know Christ, be amazed that out of the mass of humanity, God as a unique display of his glory and grace and redemption has plucked you out of the wrath that you were under to make you a treasure of Christ and his own. And this will be the kind of praise then that fills all of heaven. This is the glory of our redemption And it makes the glory of his salvation on those few all the more overwhelming. Because those who are in Christ are no more worthy of salvation than those who are outside of Christ. Just as Israel was no more worthy of God's deliverance than anybody in Egypt. They were as wicked as the Egyptians were. It was God's grace. It was his sovereign grace that pulled them out and delivered them and took them to Sinai and made promises to them. We are no better than those who are outside of Christ. All the more glorious to be in Christ by an act of grace. 
And so he says, you have called them out in a broad and particular application of Christ's redemption. Broad and so the message goes out to all, particularly in that it's applied to a few. And it's out of the mass of humanity that some are called together. And they're called together then to populate his kingdom. Verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. This is glorious. This is the future reign of the saints when Christ returns. It is an incredible promise and particularly in light of the persecution that those who, many who received this letter and many of those who would in the future be under persecution in the tribulation, that these who seem to be so weak and under the power of the ungodly will one day reign. That's the promise. That's the certainty of it. He says they will reign upon the earth. We've looked at this many times. He's mentioned this already in the great promise to the church. To the church, particularly to Thyatira. When he says, I will give authority, them authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter are broken into pieces. And there he's referring to the one who overcomes, who keeps his deeds to the end. Speaking of the shared rule and authority and glory that we will have under Christ as the king of his kingdom. There is a reign that is coming. A reign that is promised. And again, the reign here initially will be at the return of Christ. It will be at the return of Christ. There are a few, two phases to this. And we, again, we've talked about this. I'm going to just remind us. Two phases to this promise and this reign. When he returns in Matthew 25, 31 to sit on his glorious throne when he gathers the nations before him and he separates the sheep and the goat. That is, after the, that is the return of Christ in Revelation 19 when he establishes his rule, when he removes every corrupting uh, factor on his creation and in his kingdom. When he comes and he returns as Israel's promised king, then there will be a reign that is enjoyed by his people. The reign that he was indicating when he spoke to his apostles and says, you will rule over the tribes of Israel. Is at that time in chapter 20, verse 4, that he says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony, because of the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast and so forth had not received the mark on their forehead and their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the kingdom that is coming, but that's not the final stage of it. There is in Revelation 22 another eternal reality to this reign. And he says they will reign forever and ever. Not for a thousand years on that kingdom, but forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise to his people. And it's important that we note two reasons why it's important that he would add that language upon the earth, upon the earth. Why would it be important? Why can't we just dismiss the fact that Christ has a promise to demonstrate his authority and his sovereignty over this present earth? Why can we not ignore that? And why does he make that claim? One, let me just briefly, it because it fulfills the purposes of God in creation and redemption in Christ. Man was created to rule and subdue the earth. Genesis 1.26 they were created to rule and subdue the earth. Because of the fall, man did not do that as they should have. 
Instead, was under the judgment of God and subject to the authority and the dominion of darkness and the dominion of the evil one from which the, the saints are delivered. It says in Hebrews 2, in subjecting all things to him, he left, that is to man, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not see all things subject to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And he goes on. In other words, what man failed to fulfill in their created design was fulfilled in Christ and is fulfilled through Christ by all of those who belong to him. So it fulfills God's purposes on earth. It fulfills his promises on earth. He made specific promises that must be fulfilled. Number two, briefly, it vindicates his name. It vindicates his name. Throughout, particularly even in the Old Testament, God was concerned that his name be vindicated among all of the nations through his fulfillment of what was promised. Let me just give you one verse, just for time's sake. Ezekiel 36 is looking forward to this new kingdom. And he says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, in verse 22, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself holy among you, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, remove the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statues and you will live in the land that I gave to your fathers and so you will be my people and so forth. In other words, the accomplishment of that, which was a direct promise is a vindication of God's holiness and his name and his rule over all of the kingdoms. It's not unlike Moses' concern when God said, let me wipe them out and make a new nation for you. And Moses said, why? So all of the nations will say God wasn't able to do what he promised? No. No. So it is important to understand. God will fulfill his promises he will fulfill them upon this earth. He will establish his kingdom and he will be glorified in doing so. And actually this language comes from Daniel 7. We won't turn there, but there he talks about the return of the Son of Man and all the peoples will worship him and will glory in him. And let me give you just a great summary of this. I quote, and this is reference to Daniel 7. Christ reigns in the heart of believers in a spiritual sense today, but this passage describes the bestowing of a physical kingdom through which he will someday rule the earth. All of the other kingdoms described in this chapter are real earthly empires, and it is best to see this kingdom as real and earthly as well. Through his rule on earth, though his rule on earth will last 1,000 years, Christ's sovereignty will not end after the millennium, but will extend and continue throughout all eternity. That's the promise. You will be a kingdom and priest and you will reign upon the earth. This earth, the regenerate earth to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will reign also as priest. Which is just to say that a people who have constant access to God. Who bear his name and so represent him on the earth. And so mediate his rule upon the earth. 
And it leads to a song of praise then. First, it was the song of praise there of the 24 elders and of the living creatures. And then in verse 11, it expands out now to the rest of the angelic world. And he says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. This is presumably the realm of all of the holy angels and the unfallen angels who occupy heaven and surround the presence of God. Angels who now are servants of the church and of Christ. And this is a further expression of the marvel that angels have at the wonder and the mystery of God's redemption in Christ. Angels marvel at God's redemption in Christ. In Ephesians 3.10, after explaining the glory of his ministry, he says this, Paul does, just listen. That this glory of God who created all things in his redemption of a new humanity, a people in Christ. He says this in verse 10. The purpose of that is so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So all of the angelic world would look at the glory of what God did in Christ and marvel at the wisdom of God. Marvel at it. We get a picture of this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, just listen. Speaking of the salvation in Christ that even the prophets sought to understand, of the sufferings of Christ, the glories to follow, it says in verse 12 of 1 Peter 1, you remember this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, here it is, things into which angels long to look. They marvel at it. They marvel at the redemption of God, particularly the redemption of God through the suffering of His Son. They're trying to understand it. You will remember that God did not redeem nor offer redemption to any of the fallen holy uh, original, original angels. Those who fell in the rebellion of Satan are under His judgment forever. There was no offer of salvation to them, but there is to humanity. And at the greatest and most glorious and wondrous price of the suffering of his own son. And so what is the content of their worship, this whole angelic realm? Well, again, the theme of the chapter. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. It is the worthiness of Christ. It is worthiness of the God-man slain. It is the worthiness of the final sacrifice, of the promised one, of the one who would redeem, the Lamb who was slain. He alone could be worthy. And by virtue of his nature as the God-man who was the Messiah, he is worthy to redeem not only a people, but all of creation back to God, the creation that was created through him and for him. He is the very center purpose of God's creating anything, as we note many times. Why does creation exist? It exists for the glory of God in Christ, through whom he would redeem a people for himself to ever be the trophies of his grace to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why anything exists. And he reconciled all things to God. Look at the global nature again of God's purposes. We won't read the whole thing. After saying that all things were created through him, including the angelic realm, his preeminence above all of creation, it says this of Christ, and through him, that is Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All things were created through him. 
All things were created for him. He reconciled all things back to God. All things belong to him. He is glorified in them. And that reality is the praise of all of heaven. They ascribe to him the fruit then of all of creation. The fruit then of all of creation. As they worship him and say to him, he is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let me just be brief here. What is, we could summarize all of this essentially by saying the fruit of all of created glory. The fruit of all of created glory. While these are distinct, they are to be seen also together in this seven manifold expression of worship as the collected glory of creation that is rightly possessed by the Lamb and later the Father who sits upon the throne. It is the, all of created glory is to resound back to the praise and the honor of Christ. And to say here he receives them is not to say that he doesn't have them and then he receives them at this time. It's acknowledgement they are saying that he is the one to rightly possess them. He already receives them. He's already in heaven as at the right hand of the Father. He already has all authority in heaven and earth. We looked at this in the Gospels. He has already been handed over everything by his Father. This is the worship to say and he is the one who is worthy to have them. And he alone is the one who is worthy to possess all these things. It's a declaration of his sole right to and possession of them as the God-man and the Redeemer. Power, infinite power to rule. Riches, all material blessing and beauty and abundance of all of creation. Wisdom, the ability to rule with perfect understanding and goodness and righteousness. Strength, no limitation to the, in his, the ability to exercise his will. Honor, which points to his infinite worth and value as the Lamb. Glory, acknowledging his eternal beauty and divine nature on the display and the delight of all of his creatures. Blessing, which is to say everlasting joy, happiness, and every good thing from God. God and creation. And this stands in striking contrast, just two simple observations, to the world and to the kingdom of Antichrist, and it's meant to. One, these are the things that men long for, but they long for them apart from Christ. These are the things that Demas, having loved this present world, forsook Paul and the ministry and returned to it in Thessalonica. These are the things that men are willing to forfeit their soul that they can have. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? How many would give up everything that God promises in Christ to gain this, which is passing away? But it all belongs to Christ anyway. Secondly, what stands in contrast then is that Christ's achievement of these things stands in direct opposition to the fallen sinful worldview of man in this way. One, Man seeks to gain them very often by force, oppression, a general lack of concern for others, for self-glory, to gain them at any cost. Christ, by nature, who alone is worthy of them, gave them by his self-giving, his suffering, his sacrifice, his humbling himself. He gave everything of himself in order to purchase them for his enemies, by nature. To redeem a people. Christ possesses all of these things as a means of extending the blessing and enjoyment of them to his own in love. Whereas men love to lord it over others. Amass riches for their own enjoyment and their own pleasure at the disregard of others and the oppression of others. Not Christ, not God. He possesses all things that he might share all things. That he might give himself eternally in blessing and goodness to his people. 
that he has an inheritance, not for him to keep unto himself, but to populate with those whom we will share all the blessings of that inheritance. How opposite is Christ and God to the world? How much more beautiful is holiness and righteousness and the glory of God to the darkness and the putridness and the ugliness of sin, the oppression of sin? We won't make that comparison. I'll just mention it for time's sake. But you compare it to the kingdom of the Antichrist. What is it? Deception, lies, violence, beheading, greed, slavery, immorality, dishonesty. All of those things are a part of the kingdom of Antichrist, but not the beautiful kingdom of Christ. It's all the glories that God intended to be sparkling with the beauty of holiness that are all of the possession of Christ and ours who belong to Christ. And lastly, note this as we come to the table. Every created thing now joins in this worship. He says it in verse 13. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. And I would note this about it. This is a comprehensive statement. This means that every sentient being of creation, even angels now held in judgment and unregenerate humanity who refuses to worship him now, will one day give glory to God and to the Lamb. The language makes it plain and it's universally understood. This is referring to every created thing. It is the worship that is to come. It is a vision of the things that will to come. It is... In one sense, a sight of that promise, we read it in Isaiah 45, applied to Christ in Philippians 2, that one day every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All will acknowledge the glory of God, and His great name will be vindicated. And the lie that men believe that Paul mentioned in Romans 1, by which they so willingly then will not worship the Creator, but worship created things, that lie will be blown away by the glorious truth and presence of God, and whom even those now have the utmost hatred for Him will acknowledge that He is the only one that is worthy of blessing and glory. Those who refuse to worship now will one day worship in their tongues, not in their hearts, of course, because there is the judgment to come, but there will be the acknowledgement of the glory of God in Him alone. And notice just one other thing here. This is not, this is not a parted out kind of glory, like most of the glory goes to the Father and then some of the glory goes to the Lamb secondarily and then maybe the Spirit's in there somewhere. This is a singular act of worship to him who sits on the throne, the Father, and to the Lamb, and by inclusion in the whole scene of heaven, even the Spirit, but particularly here focused on the Father and of the Lamb. This is a statement of the divine glory of Christ, as has been evident throughout as we've gone through. Equally receiving the worship, equally receiving the praise, equally receiving the fruit of all of creation and the glory that is due their name by virtue of creation and again, redemption. And so this is the end and it is an eternal worship. It goes back in verse 14 now to the angelic beings before him, the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped. 
And so in anticipation of that day, we sing about that often. But let me end by this as we come into the table and you think about it. This is a prayer. It's called Concentration, Consecration and Worship in the Valley of Vision. It goes like this, and may this be our prayer. My O God, I feel it is heaven to please thee and to be what thou wouldst have me to be. O that I were holy as thou art holy, pure as Christ is pure, perfect as thy spirit is perfect. These I feel are the best commands in thy book. And shall I break them? Must I break them? Am I under such a necessity as long as I live here? Woe, woe is me, the, the, uh, the sinner, that I grieve this blessed God who is infinite in goodness and grace. Oh, if he would punish me for my sins, it would not wound my heart so deep as to offend him. But through, though I sin continually, he continually repeats his kindness to me. At times I feel I could bear any suffering, but how can I dishonor this glorious God? What shall I do to glorify and worship this best of beings? Oh, that I could consecrate my soul and my body to a service without restraint forever. Oh, that I could give myself up to him so as never more to attempt to be my own or have any will or affections that are not perfectly conformed to his will and his love. But alas, I cannot live and not sin. Oh, may angels glorify him incessantly and if possible prostrate themselves lower before the king of heaven. I long to bear a part with them in ceaseless praise. But when I have done all I can to eternity, I shall not be able to offer more than the small fraction of the homage that the glorious God deserves. Give me a heart full of divine and heavenly love. And with that, the men will come forward and let me pray as you prepare your hearts to remember the Christ in the supper. Father, thank you for the great promises that you give to us that are yes and amen in Christ that are secured to us our Lord through your atoning death and through your resurrection in which the new creation was guaranteed as in broken into the present creation by the coming of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church and now we live in that dual experience of having the first fruits the first taste of the glories to come but yet ever so dimly as we remain in these bodies of flesh but one day one day, the promise is we will be free from these bodies to live forever in your presence. Free not only from sin's penalty, free from not only sin's power, but free from sin's very presence forever. To offer you what our hearts long to offer you, all of who we are, in glad and delighted and full worship and praise and obedience. To that end, Lord, keep our hearts attuned and our minds focused that we might live wisely in this world and be useful to you, our master. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.